0: Hey, welcome, everybody. Glad that you guys are here. It feels like a family reunion, looking out and seeing a whole bunch of faces that I haven't seen in a while. It, it does my heart good. So just thank you, those of you who are here in-house, just for being here. It just feels so much more like home. And every little bit that we get closer to anything that feels like normal is helpful, right? It's, it's so hard to have everything in our lives be turned upside down which is why I'm even more excited than ever to share a word from thousands of years ago to help us feel like things can get back to normal, right? So that's, that's what we're doing. And I want to warn you ahead of time, I had a hard night sleeping last night. In fact, the last couple nights I have. Last night, though, I, was, I kept having a worship song in my head over and over as I was trying to go to sleep. And the worship song kept going. It was like on a repeat track. And I found myself getting annoyed by it. Like, Lord, if you would just quit putting this worship song in my head, I could get some sleep. And then I started thinking, maybe he's trying to get through to me. Knocking on my forehead. Like, you know what? Trust me. Sleep is much less important than what I'm trying to get through to you right now but that doesn't preclude the fact that in order to have energy for this, I had to have a Red Bull right before this service. So I want to apologize right now. Lord was speaking to me last night. He spoke to me through this message. I was excited enough about that, and now I'm on a Red Bull in addition to the coffee that I had when I woke up. So yay for me, and you guys get to... You guys get to bear the brunt of that. So if you're at home and you're watching, welcome. Glad that you guys are here. If you're watching us throughout the week on Facebook or YouTube, glad that you guys are taking the time to join us. It means so much to me. In-house is incredible. We have hundreds of people all over the country who are joining us online throughout the week. And it's just amazing what the devil intended for evil, God will use for good. Amen? You know that because people that have never even heard of this church or the way that we preach or the way that we do anything are now joining us online and getting to hear the gospel of Jesus spoken. Now, when we normally think of the gospel of Jesus, we think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospels, right? The gospel of Jesus is woven throughout the Bible all the way back to the very first verse of the very first book in Genesis. Jesus is present through that. But sometimes we have to look a little deeper. If you just do a casual cursory reading of the Bible, sometimes you're going to miss so much of the fullness of it, which is why at this church we teach, and the burden that God has put on my heart is to teach the way that we do, which is take a scripture, and let's really dig in. Rather than to teach topically or to find a subject, people are still hitting me up all the time. Why don't you do a message or a series on race relations? Why don't you do a message or a series on how to deal with COVID-19 and all the different things that are going on in the world? Well, I would counter that we are because the word of God is sufficient for everything that mankind has ever gone through and will ever go through. But here's the thing rather than to be spoon-fed, here's how you should feel about this, we have to be intentional about learning what the Word of God says and then letting that resonate in our hearts. Thousands of years ago in the Old Testament, before Jesus, when they had to consult, how should we act, they just had the law. That's all they had was the law. And the law kept them safe to an extent but there was so much more to it. When Jesus Christ came to give us freedom, in many ways, that freedom is so much harder than just following the law. Because if you said, give me a list of do's and don'ts and I will do the best I can to do that, okay? Well, even then we see how they more often than not failed in following that list of do's and don'ts. When Christ came, he came not to abolish that, but to fulfill it, and what that came with is not only a list of what we should do and how we should live our lives. But now we have the Holy Spirit in us saying, okay, I know you think you did that by the letter of the law, but where was your heart? And that's so much harder in so many ways. But what we're going to do now, we're going to go back. And we're going to continue in our series. In fact, we're almost finished with it. Just got a few more weeks left. Our series is called Trey Asar. And Trey Asar is a Hebrew word that means the 12. Okay, so if you haven't joined us in a while, you might go back and check out either on YouTube, Facebook, or through our website, and you can catch the previous messages in the series. Trey Asar, when we think of the 12, especially from a New Testament uh, mindset, we might be thinking the 12 apostles. Oh, I know about the 12 apostles. But this is the 12 minor prophets, okay, called Trey Asar. The minor prophets in the, in the Old Testament scriptures, they're called minor not because of um, the importance of what they wrote, not because they were somehow a, a second tier, a minor league of prophets. Um, it wasn't anything like that. It's simply called minor because for the most part, they're more short and concise, the writings, written to a specific person, or or people, or nation, for a specific reason. And they're put into scripture because they are as applicable to our lives today as they were then. So that's why I think it's important to go back and see. Now, God truly ordained this because before all this COVID stuff broke out, he put on my heart to do a series on the Minor Prophets. And as we go through, we find that they address the things that we are going through today from all different angles, just as if it was being written today. And that's the way God works. And that's why I'm so excited to help, uh, to help you see the fullness of this, and I hope I can do that. I'm gonna go back and just do a little quick recap before we get into, this, into the teaching for today. A quick recap, and if you're new with us, What I like to do is take a scripture and go back and tell you, here's why this was written. Here's who it was written to. Here's what was going on in the world at the time. Because most of us know, and if you don't, I'm going to help you, context is everything. You can't simply read one scripture and say, that's my life verse, Okay? You need to understand it in the fullness of what it is because that can be twisted and turned. And out of context, the word of God can be manipulated or just, if not even intentional, misspoken. And I want to make sure we have this right. So let's do a quick recap. Let's go back. Come with me, if you will. 538 B.C., 538 years before Christ. The nation... Of Israel has been essentially disbanded. They've been attacked and dispersed through all all over the place. Now the nation of Judah. Remember, it's a divided kingdom. We have the Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom. Israel is the Northern Kingdom. Judah is the Southern Kingdom. So we have Northern, Southern. The Southern Kingdom, Judah, kind of thought for a while that maybe they had escaped some of this battles that were going on, and they thought maybe they were in the clear. They were wrong. Okay, they were attacked and conquered and led away into captivity. So they were, as a nation, hundreds of thousands of people taken out of Judah up into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar and enslaved. So we have whole generations. For a 70-year period, we have generations or a generation at least who was born and raised in captivity in a pagan nation under a pagan king. Now, they were at some level allowed to still worship their God and to do their things, but they were captives. And they didn't realize the effect in many ways that that was having on them. Now, we fast forward a little bit. Through divine providence, and you can listen to the previous messages to get the fullness of what's going on here, but King Cyrus of Persia. Now, we have Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Okay, now they're, they're actually conquered by the Persians. And the Persians come in, they conquer Uh, the Babylonians and they essentially take all the plunder of the battle, the spoils of war, if you will. So they take the slaves and they take the gold and they take every other territories and everything as their own. So basically the, the people of Judah are being handed off as spoils of war. They used to be our captors and our boss. Now it's these guys. Okay. So they're just being handed off like property. But Cyrus Cyrus the Great, you'll see him in history as, as the uh, king of Persia, he has this divine revelation through another prophet, words that a prophet spoke to him saying how very clearly Cyrus, now these are the words from Isaiah from 150 years prior. Isaiah mentions him by name and says, Cyrus will release the captives and not only release the captives, but is going to pay to restore the nation. That's a big thing. But Cyrus hears this, and in, his, in the wisdom that he's capable of as a pagan king, he says, I kind of have to do that. I was mentioned by name 150 years ago. So he does this. He releases the nation of Judah, sends them home. Not all of them go. About 50,000 of them or so go, many well over 100,000 stay. They're given their freedom, but they decide to stay in captivity. Why would they do that? We'll talk more about that in just a little bit here. But not only does Cyrus send them back home, but he bankrolls them and says, I want you to rebuild the temple of Solomon that was torn down by, by their predecessors, and I want you to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and restore. This is how God works. He can use our absolute enemies to restore that was taken, which was taken away. God is always wanting to restore what was stolen. But when we jump ahead of him and we decide we need to figure out how to, to get what's ours or get payback or rebu- uh, retribution, it never goes the right way. If we wait on the Lord and his purposes... We see these amazing ways that this all happens. And so this is what's going on here. So the people have returned back to Judah, 50,000 of them anyway. They come back, and Judah is basically kind of lays in shambles. It's been ignored for 70 years. The vines, a lot of the vines have died or just run wild. A lot of the fruit trees are dead, homes lie in ruin. And most importantly, the temple of Solomon has been just destroyed and ransacked and looted, and it just lays there in, in rubble, essentially. Now, they come back, and they've been given not only their freedom, but charged to go back and rebuild the temple. So they come back, and they look at the temple, and they look at their houses and fields that lie in ruin, and they go, we'll get to that. We'll get to the temple. So they work on it for a little bit, but very quickly get sidetracked. Again, go back and read the previous messages if you want to see how that happened. But bottom line here is the temple lies in ruin for about 16 years. 16 years worth of walking by every day, seeing the temple on the hill, and just going, we'll get to it. We'll get to it at some point. Well, what happens is God sends a prophet, and his name is Haggai. You can go back and listen to the messages on Haggai if you want. Haggai starts delivering a word from the Lord and stirring up the people this burden to go back and rebuild the temple. And it works. They catch fire, they hear him, and they go back, and then they start rebuilding the temple. Now, Haggai was used to start this revival. So much more than just a building project, it's a revival in their hearts. And Haggai gets this started. The temple work starts to get going. But Haggai's an old man at this point. Haggai's. 70 plus, 70, 89. and in those days, that was very, very old, with apologies to those of you who are in that age range now. Back then, it was very old. So he's at the end of his ministry. The Lord then raises up another prophet, and this prophet's name is Zechariah, and his, his charge is to not only continue getting that temple rebuilt, but to keep that fire stoked, to keep that little ember of zeal, of excitement for things of the Lord that was starting to get fanned and starting to work to get that fanned into flame and keep that going. And part of what he's charged with is revealing the fullness of how just how cool what God is about to do really is. It's so much more than just let's build a building so God can go live there. There's so much more to it, and this is what Zechariah has Uh, has in his heart and this burden that he's got to share with the people. So if you remember last week, last week uh, basically was kind of the introduction to all this, where he lays out really the reason that he's doing this. But I want to share this with you. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you says the Lord of hosts. A couple things you see about this, says the Lord of hosts is three times. In one sentence, it says the Lord of hosts. That's gotta be significant. But if we just take that out, therefore say to them, return to me that I may return to you. So God is saying, I want the people to return to me and as soon as they do, I can well and truly return to them. Not just live in a building. Now that phrase, Lord of hosts, we talked about it last week, but remember, Lord of hosts literally means commander of all armies. Okay, growing up, and when I first read that, I shared this last week, I always just thought Lord of hosts, he's he's the ultimate at hospitality. He's the ultimate host. That's what I thought Lord of hosts meant until I really studied this a while back. Lord of hosts literally means the commander of all armies armies heavenly armies and earthly armies why is that significant because this prophet is telling them hey you know the commander of the of the persian armies the commander of the babylonian armies the commander of the assyrians the egyptians the moabites everybody who is surrounding them guess who their ultimate commander is your god is their commander can you imagine the mindset you're going well then why did he allow them To do, If he's the commander, why did he allow them to come in? And it's this. God is going to turn that heat up in our lives as much as he needs to to get our attention. Back then, it was a whole nation that you needed to get their attention. But now it's individual more so than national. But God wants your attention. He wants your attention. He wants your heart. And he will do whatever he needs to do to get you away from your distractions and focused on where it needs to be, which is on him. So as we go into the rest of Zechariah here, remember I quoted John MacArthur, one of the theologians that I like. last week. He's not perfect, but I like a lot of what he says. And he describes Zechariah this way. He says it's the most messianic, apocalyptic, and eschatological. There's all these really churchy words. You can throw them out in your next Bible study and feel smart. Messianic just means relating to Christ, okay, but he says it's the most messianic, apocalyptic, es- eschatological one in all of the New Testament. He says second only to Isaiah, I think it might be the most of all of them. Apocalyptic means study of the final events. In fact, the Greek word apocalypsis, where that comes from, translates as revelation. Where else do we see a revelation? In the last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's the most geared towards that, towards fulfilling what we see in Revelation, and then eschatological, which just means the study of the, of the final things, of the, of the surrounding events and things leading up to the end and those things that relate to the end. So as we read this, this is what this means to us, as we read this and we study through this book of Zechariah, we need to do it through a lens of a coming Messiah, We need to realize that all the words in this, even more so than the rest of Scripture, it really points towards a coming Messiah. So when we read some of these things and we go, what's he trying to say there? We first and foremost have to think, how does this relate to Christ? And then that helps us to understand where he's going with the rest of this. So let's do that. We're going to divide this book into sections. I had been doing one book of the Minor Prophets each week. We're breaking this one into, into three, maybe four because there's so much here. Not only is it one of the longer books in, in the minor prophets, but there's just so much depth. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to talk about the visions, because after the introduction, he goes right into these visions that were given to him by the Lord. And so there's eight visions. We're going to just do four visions today. We'll do the other four next week. Because there's so much richness and so much depth, there is no way that I could possibly even cover it. If you think I teach fast normally, there is no way that we could do that. So we're going to divide it up. So let's get into it, the eight visions. First of all, here's a quick picture. I think this is a, a little picture. This is, uh, yeah, this is Zechariah. This is a painting from Michelangelo on the roof of the Sist- Sistine Chapel. So if you ever get a chance to go to the Sistine Chapel, you might have seen this. In fact, it's got all the prophets uh, painted around there but that's give or take what Zechariah looked like now and this Zechariah is an old man when we get into the later chapters of Zechariah that's a more accurate description as we see here he's a very young man he's at the beginning of his of his career as a prophet he's probably in his 20s at this point when he delivers the the words that we're going to see here today now, we're going into prophecies, as I said. It's, it's a prophetic vision that's been given to him. And they can come, prophecies can come in many, many ways. Prophecies can be delivered in, in an actual a word. You can hear a word, here's what I have to say to you. It can be uh, an oracle. And an oracle, we see that word from time to time in Old Testament Scripture, and it just means a burden. It means the burden that God has put, a burden on your heart to share a certain idea. Now, burdens by nature are not necessarily, or oracles are not necessarily um, explicit. They don't say, do this because of this or this. It's more of an idea, and those things can be subject to human interpretation, and because of that, human error or misinterpretation. We see that a lot. The same thing happens with a prophetic dream or a vision. Now, a vision... um, in in most cases, is a waking dream. You're awake and you see these visions. But sometimes a vision can come in the form of a, of a dream at night as you sleep. And that's what's happening here with Zechariah. But the bottom line is they're all subject to interpretation and therefore potentially error. And so in order to really get the fullness, we need to study what was said what made its way into Scripture, and what that really means. It's very important that we, that we look at that in depth. If you want to read some interesting Scripture about visions and prophecies, read 1 Kings. The ladies that are in the 1 Kings uh, Bible study that Pastor Gabe was talking about, read 1 Kings 22. Really cool set of Scriptures about some visions. Um, but we'll get going. We'll skip that for now. Read that if you if you have time or if you have a desire to. But here's a question. When I talk about potentially um, oracles, visions, being subject to interpretation and thereby the error that potentially goes along with it, to me it raises the immediate question, why doesn't God just say what he means? Why doesn't he just, why, why does Jesus speak in parables? Why do we have visions and prophecies and different things that we have to interpret and figure out? Wouldn't it be much better if it just said, here it is, ABC, and there's no imagery, and there's nothing to think. You ever think about that? I think about that all the time. If it wasn't for that, here's the reason. If it wasn't for that, I would have nothing to explain to you. So thank you, Lord, for, no. I I would be extremely happy if everything was just clear. But here's the problem. If it's clear, how many people read the instructions and go, I don't need that. I'll figure it out anyway, right? Men, I'm speaking mostly to you, right? There's a whole instruction book. I'll figure it out. That's what we do with life. There's a whole instruction book. I'll just figure it out. We do that all the time. Most people, unfortunately, aren't really interested in the truth or the depth of the truth. They want to just be told. Just tell me what I got to do. And when I need to do it, tell me where to show up and what to say, and I'll just do it. Many, many teachers teach that way. Many churches are that way. And at a certain level, I think that's okay. Biblical ideas, here's here's how I think you should live your life. But I think it's so much more to go into the scripture. And that being the case, scripture takes some work. It's hard to just casually read it and get the depth, especially when we're talking about things that are all uh, prophetic and, and, and allegories and things like this. It's difficult. And here's the bottom line, really, though. The truth of God is meant to be, more than anything else, understood spiritually. Rather than just thou shalt and thou shalt not, there's a depth to it that needs to be not only sought out, And hungered for, but revealed spiritually. And so just a casual cursory reading, you'll get something out of it. But there's a depth that we don't get unless we're looking for it. Unless we're trying to like, what did he mean when he said faith is like a mustard seed? What does that really mean? You start thinking about it and then there's a depth that's revealed. That's why this happens. Visions and parables that we're talking about here, visions specifically, But even where Jesus taught in parables, they're kind of more universal in nature. When you seek what the Holy Spirit says, or when you seek that truth, you get application to your life. And so they're much more universal. They can be literal. They can be figurative. We see that all the time. But it's up to the hearer to seek that understanding. Or not. If you choose to not seek the understanding, then that's okay but you won't get the depth of what's going on, and there's so much more. Visions also often contain a history that hasn't happened yet. So the people at the time are hearing things that hasn't happened yet in their lifetime. So we look at Scripture like this, and most of what's being relayed here, the people would have had very little context to even understand what was happening. It's only in retrospect when we look back and we can see, okay, he said that and then this happened. He said that and it was fulfilled here. And we see that time and time again, but we can only do that if we make the effort to do it. It also, visions keep keep some of the mystery, if you will. We talk about that in terms of marriage. You've got to keep the mystery in the relationship. And what does that do? It keeps you hungry to try and figure out what's going on in the next thing, and it's true here too. We see Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8 says, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. And he goes on to say, if they'd understood it, they wouldn't have killed Jesus. But I would submit that's one of the reasons why they didn't understand it because that had to happen in order for prophecy to be fulfilled. And then the last reason, really, the, sometimes the shock value of a vision helps to make it memorable. We talk about, in, in the book of the Revelation of, of Jesus Christ, we talk about dragons, giant dragons. We talk about big angels, giant angels with one foot on the land and one foot in the sea. Those things are, are really, Jonah and the whale, those things are, are very visually shocking. And to try and think about that, makes them memorable. It's really not something that we can ever figure out always, but we'll know it when we see it. And thankfully, we get to see these things unfold. So let's go, let's go into the visions of Zechariah. As I said, there's eight of them. We're going to do four because there's a lot of depth here. So the very first vision, your Bible might have it under the heading of the patrol of the earth. What it is, it's God promising prosperity back to the nation of Israel. Now, when I say Israel, I'm talking about northern and southern, the United Kingdoms which come together again. Right now, there's really only Judah. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 7 opens up like this. It says, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the prophet, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, as follows. Now, you can listen to last week's message if you want a little bit more depth on what is exactly happening there. But this time frame translates to about 519 BC. It's about three months after Zechariah spoke his first words of prophecy. So the temple construction is still going on, and he gets this vision. The vision is here. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 8. I saw at night, meaning it's a dream, tells us that right off the bat, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine, with red sorrel and white horses behind him. Okay, so a lot of, vision, a lot of imagery and things going on there. First of all, the myrtle trees. Myrtle trees are a common symbol, at least in that culture, of restoration, abundance, and blessing. We have, I think we have an image of a myrtle tree Imagine a whole orchard full of those. These flowers, it's not a great picture, but the flowers, big, giant, white, pristine-looking flowers, it's, they're absolutely beautiful, that grow in that area. Myrtle trees are also associated with one of their festivals that they had. We call it the Feast of Tabernacles, or it was called the Festival of Booths, or the Feast of Booths, sometimes. Um, it's all the same thing. It's a seven-day festival that happens in October. A lot of of uh, Jewish community, a lot of Christian communities will, will celebrate that. And what that means, it's just an annual reminder to God's people that the temple was now among them and that God would be among them and protect them. It's a reminder of the covenant, but it's more so than that, it's a foreshadow of the temple being in us. So moving on here, Zechariah chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. I'll read this one to you. If you have your Bible, follow along. Uh, Otherwise, if you don't, I'll just read these to you. Then I said, my Lord, what are these? First of all, I love it when they ask that question because then they're going to explain what the imagery means. It takes a lot of the guesswork out of it for us. Then I said, my Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are those whom the Lord sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing amongst the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. So by looking at this imagery, we have four horses, four riders, four angelic riders on the horses, and three of them are behind, which means in a subservient position. So the first one speaking is their leader. They are, they, are, they are a lower tier down from him. So most likely, that one speaking is Michael. Scripture doesn't say that explicitly. We can infer that because we see it later in Revelation. So it's probably Michael is one of these four horsemen. But the rest of them we see as the four horsemen of what we call the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which you read about. If you want to read Revelation chapter 6, it describes them in more detail. But they're at one end of things, and here we are at an earlier earlier time frame. These four horsemen have been roaming the earth, and they report back, and they say all is peaceful. And we know from history that not all was peaceful on the earth, right? There was constantly stuff going on. They're referring more to spiritual battles in the heavenly realms. Things are quiet right now. In fact, it was a time of relative peace, the, all the enemies of Judah that were kind of in a lull of fighting there wasn 't a lot of battle going on. they were kind of fat and happy and enjoying the fruits of their of their plunder, of their spoils, so it was relatively quiet. The people in Judah though would look out and their life was hard. They were replanting, rebuilding, trying to remake their nation into everything that, that it used to be, and it 's hard work. Supplies are short they 're getting harassed by their neighbors. It's not an easy life. And a lot of them are starting to say, why did we ever leave? Why didn't we stay with all those who, the ones who stayed in captivity were the smart ones because they've got plenty. They're not at war anymore. They're sure they're they're servants and sure they're captive, but they enjoy a better life than we do in our freedom. So they're starting to have these second second guess uh, their choices and some doubts. How often do we do that? We do that all the time. The second, that's the first prophetic vision. Let's go into the second one. The second one, my Bible titles it, The Four Horns and the Four Craftsmen. Lots of imagery here. Let's talk about it. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 18, 19. Then I lifted up my eyes, and I looked, and behold, there were four horns. So I said to the angel who was speaking to me, What are these? And he answered me, These are the horns with horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Horns, very common at that time and all throughout Scripture as imagery regarding a nation or, or a leader of a nation, right? It, 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 it points to a national power, kings, leaders. Probably in this case, the four it's referring to are uh, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and then, uh, and then Persia. And there's more to come. There's gonna be a constant string of them as we know from history. So that's what the four horns are, symbolizes these four nations and kings, four authorities, so to speak. Zechariah chapter one, 20, 21 says, then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man lifts up his head. Meaning they, they mope around, it's, bad. it's a rough time for them, right? They don't even lift up their head. But these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to throw down the horns of the nations who I have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. What this means, again, a lot of imagery there. This points to the fact that the Lord is the commander of heavenly hosts and he has scattered, he has lifted up these armies to scatter the people of Judah in order to refocus and reset their brains. But the idea of craftsmen, we're talking about stone workers, metal workers, woodworkers and what they were doing, they would build weapons. They would build spears. They would build swords. They would build catapults and different things like that. And the idea is that each one would provide a little bit of just pounding on their neighbors, on their enemies, these horns, in order to cast them aside, conquer them and cast them aside. In other words, the Lord was done with them. Their time was finished. Each one of these horns overthrowing the next. And we see that where we have Egypt came in and then they are quickly conquered by um, the Assyrians. And then the Assyrians who thought that they were the be-all, end-all power they're conquered by the Babylonians. Babylonians, same thing. Nobody can touch us. And then the Persians come in, and it's just a cycle that goes on and on and on. And this is what he's talking about here. Those enemies of of Israel and of Judah, God will use them to accomplish his purposes, but make no mistake, they are still enemies. And when he's finished, they're gone third prophetic vision here. It's called, it's titled in mind, Man with a Measuring Line. Now, it's about the restoration of Jerusalem itself. Zechariah chapter 2 verse 1, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hands. Now, many theologians, and I tend to agree that this man is probably Jesus himself, And he's got a measuring line. A measuring line was a way that they surveyed back then, okay? They didn't have all the sights and scopes like we do now. They either had a measuring rod, which was a stick that was of a known length, and they would use that to mark out the territories, whether they're individual plots of land or the nation. And a line then was much longer, better suited for large areas. And a measuring line was used for that, okay? That's what this is. If you want... If you want a little research on whether this is Christ himself or not, go back and read Jeremiah 31 if you want. A hundred years before this, Jeremiah is talking about the new covenant, which we know now is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And with regards to the new covenant, he says this in Jeremiah 31, a measuring line will go out, expanding Jerusalem. (laughs) Excuse me, this measuring line, and that's through Christ. So that's how we can look at this prophecy here, this vision, and believe that that's probably Christ himself or a vision of that. 500 years later than this, an apostle named John would explain it even more when he received the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he writes in Revelation 21 15, 16 The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out in a square, and he goes on to talk about the size of New Jerusalem, 1,500 miles high, wide, and and deep, giant, giant city. But he's then referring back to Christ having that measuring rod. So we need to look at Scripture from New Testament, Old Testament, before and after, to really get the fullness of the pictures, what's happening here. Moving on, Zechariah chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him. And said to him, run, speak to that young man, saying Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. What he's saying there, it's not go stop him from measuring. It's figurative, and he's saying, I am going to be their protector. The walls are important to have walls, but those walls haven't stopped any nation from attacking you so far. I will be the one that will protect you, as if a ring of fire. And not only that, but the influence and the nation uh, or the city of Jerusalem will expand far beyond the gates. Far beyond what they could ever imagine is the imagery that's going on here. God's kingdom is not just going to be restricted to Jerusalem's walls and then the Judeans inside. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I'm coming, and I will dwell in your midst. What a promise there. Would they have known even what that meant? They probably thought that first line just meant You're working on the temple. Soon it's going to be done, and I'll come back and live in the temple. They had no idea. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. This is so prophetic about the day of the Lord, about that day the millennial reign of Christ on earth, and it's just its laying it out there. Imagine, though, you're one of the Judeans hearing this at the time, or even Zechariah, who heard it straight from the Lord. Would you even really have any context for what this meant? I think this is another one of those scriptures that's just really meant for us. Let's move on. The fourth and final of these prophetic visions, call it cleansing of the high priest, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So much there to look at Joshua, the high priest who was elected, actually Cyrus kind of chose him and sent him back to be the high priest among the Judeans back in Jerusalem. Joshua, born and raised in captivity, had never seen a temple before, had never really done temple worship before, and yet here he is, high priest. So he's, he's a young man. He is just kind of finding his way around. And here he's being told that he is going to stand before the Lord and be accused by Satan. That's a rough first day on the job. But what it really means, so Joshua the high priest is being held accountable as the high priests were. You're held accountable for the sins of the nation. You're responsible for coming into the Holy of Holies in the temple once a year, getting the word of the Lord, doing proper sacrifice, paying penance for what the nation had done, the sins of the nation, but that was the responsibility of the high priest. And this is no different. This idea, it kind of, the, the idea of the accuser, Satan as the accuser, we see it now and we see all kinds of examples of this scene being kind of a courtroom scene, right? We have the judge, we have Satan who's the accuser, and then we have our advocate in Christ, and then there's the poor, the poor plaintiff who's usually us, Right? we are not, not, not the plaintiff, I'm sorry. I get my courtroom terms backed up. We are the accused. And Satan is the one who does that. But it's not a commonplace idea at this point. It's being introduced here, though, as really kind of the first courtroom scene. If we look forward into Revelation, Revelation 12.10, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before our God, Day and night. So again, this this points to Satan being our accuser, and we need Christ as our advocate. But this is just a glimpse. Again, they would have had really not the context that we have now. And when we see we see the Lord, it sounds like the Lord is almost forgiving Joshua. He's not. He's not forgiving him. He's not making an excuse for his failures. But he is saying, "I have chosen him, and I have chosen this nation." for a purpose and for a time. And he will not stand for Satan's accusations. That word firebrand, um, we see it now in firebrand sometimes, or it says a brand pulled before the fire. It just translates as firebrand. It's just literally a stick. Anybody ever gone camping or done a campfire? You've used a stick to poke those embers? That's what a firebrand is. It takes just the very faintest ember and is used to stoke that into fire. And so what is going on here is saying, I... The Lord has chosen Joshua to be that instrument that's going to stir up this fire, and so the Lord saves him from that very fire in order to use him to continue to stoke those flames. Zechariah chapter three, uh, verses three and four. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy. With clothes. <clears throat> Joshua was clothed. With filthy garments. That's hard to say. And standing before the angel, he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Filthy garments were just a symbol of sin laying on you. And he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Now this is an admittance. Joshua, he's guilty by the standards of that day. Joshua is guilty of the sins of the nation. He's wearing those robes. Without a doubt, he should be and was rightly judged. But God is saying, I will take that from him. I will take his iniquity from him and clothe him in the finest robes. Again, another glimpse of Christ, our advocate to come that they would have had no context for. So imagine hearing these words and trying to piece together what it really means. It would have been tough at that time. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 6-7, And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and you'll perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here." There's a lot going on there too, but just briefly, it's, it, those of you who are into computers and programming, it's a classic if-then. If that happens, then this. And he lays it out there for him very, very clearly, although it wouldn't be fulfilled till later. What he's pointing to here is once a year, he could go into the temple, the Holy of Holies, but soon that veil would be torn, and he would have access anytime. And not only him, everyone else, which was a concept that they never could have gotten their minds around at the time. This is also a glimpse, one of the first ones, we'll see more in the coming chapters, where the offices of king and high priest come together in one person. Just an illusion, just a shadow of it here, but it will come to pass later, and we'll see that, I think it's chapter 6, uh, next week, we'll talk about that. Then Zechariah 3, 8 and 9. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in that day again very clearly pointing to Christ there's so much so much symbolism going on here the friends where it says the friends standing before are a symbol of of the one and true high priest which as we know now is the messiah in Jesus the servant and branch both names for the messiah that we find in Isaiah Ezekiel Jeremiah they all talk about using those terms regarding The coming Messiah. And then, of course, the cornerstone. We see the imagery of the cornerstone all the way back, Psalm 118. Well known, most of you will know it, the stone which builders rejected have become the chief cornerstone, pointing exactly to Jesus as that cornerstone. Seven eyes, again, more imagery. What what is up with the seven eyes? What does that even mean? We see some clarity in that. Again, we have to jump way forward into the book of Revelation where again, the revelation, it's revealed. A lot of these things that we see and are just imagery are revealed at that time. And so when we read Revelation, it's not a scary book about what's to come. It helps us to understand what has always been the case. But Revelation 5.6 says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb, standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That means all the authority of all the nations coming to rest on Jesus Christ, one one Messiah who sees all and knows all. So the final the final verse, we're down, we're the last verse. Thank you. You're welcome. Zechariah 3:10. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts: every one of you will invite his neighbors to sit under the vine. And under his fig tree. There's a depth there and a fullness of that statement that we couldn't really understand. But what it is, it's the promise. It's the promise fulfilled just in this one statement. Let's look at it. In that day, he's talking about the day of the reign of Christ on earth, way in the future to them. The Lord of hosts, the commander of all armies, heavenly and earthly, says this Every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under the vine and under the fig tree. Vines and fig trees take some time to bear fruit. So those that had been trampled during the time of their exile were taking some time. They hadn't even started to bear fruit yet. This is imagery of if you've got a vine that you can sit under and just pluck grapes off, it's been that way for a while. It's been there bearing fruit for a while. Same with a fig tree. This is a picture of you and your neighbor we'll live in a time an extended time of great prosperity and you'll have all you need and you'll have time to just sit in peace with your neighbor enjoying the fruits of what God has provided this is a glimpse we read that and just go okay sounds cool but it's a big thing to them it's much much more depth and it's a time points to a time of settledness and peace an extended time that they haven't seen yet in their lives. So I'm going to wrap this up. Here's our conclusion. So a lot of these visions, we have to remember, a lot of these visions and prophecies were not even for them. They were spoken to a prophet, given to the people, but the people had no context of what most of it meant. But we do. We can look back now and all of the prophecies, all of the visions, all of the promises of God that were to, in the timeline, have been fulfilled by now, have been. There are some that are yet to come, but we have confidence when we read things like this, we can say we believe the things that are laid out in the revelation of Jesus Christ. We can have faith and confidence that those things, however crazy that might look when you just read it, It's going to come to pass. It will be fulfilled. God will have his way. And we know this because he always has. And just because we can't see it now, maybe, they couldn't see it there either. But we, in retrospect, can see what they were going through. And in years to come, we'll be able to see the promises of God unfold right before our eyes so we can have confidence in the word of God, that every word that he puts in here, the words we can clearly understand and those that we can't, and we have to scratch our heads and go, what is he trying to say there? We know that those are helpful for helping us to live a fruitful Christian life every word. There's nothing in here that is superfluous. There's nothing in here that's just, eh, it's not that important. We have to take it all because in that, it's kind of like taking a map. Remember maps? Anybody remember paper maps? Some of us do. If you only had a map, you unfolded it and you looked at it and all it had was one north-south highway and one east-west highway, okay? But you had to get somewhere. It would be marginally helpful, maybe, but it wouldn't help you navigate everything that you would go through. Only the fullness of the Word. So if you're just looking at one life verse, as people like to say, this is what I guide my life by, I'd say there's nothing wrong with that on the surface, but there needs to be more. And it's the fullness of the Scripture, Old Testament and New, that helps us to navigate what this earth and this life throw at us with any kind of confidence, every situation that life throws at us, we can navigate using the word. Now, prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit, all we had was just the law. That's all they had, a list of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do this. And it was marginally helpful. But the fullness of it did not come until the sacrifice of Jesus. The law was imperfect, it was incomplete, and it was nearly impossible To follow. Through the sacrifice of Jesus now, we're no longer condemned by the law, but set free by it. But how many of you would rather have a list of do's and don'ts and just say, if I do this, I'm okay? If I don't do this, I'm okay. Many of us just want to just tell me what to do and what not to do. Jesus came not to abolish that, but to fulfill it, which means, you can read between the lines, make it harder. So you can't just say, but I didn't do this. You didn't do it, but where was your heart? That's so much more important, and there's so much more depth. So that freedom that Christ comes to bring brings with it a responsibility. And that responsibility is not one that as Christians we should take lightly. In fact, I found a quote It's a common quote. Many of you will recognize it. The origin is kind of disputed. Different people taking some credit for it. At its root, it comes from John one thirty one, where it says, the truth will set you free. Remember, Jesus said, the truth will set you free. Here's the quote. True freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And this is genuine liberty. Because doing what we ought has now become most pleasing to us. That means with the Holy Spirit in your heart, doing the right thing. What we ought, not just what the law says, but doing what we ought now becomes pleasing to us. We're no longer under the law, but we are free. And with that comes the responsibility to seek the Holy Spirit, the gift that we have been given that they didn't have then. We have thousands of years of retrospect and the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is no excuse for a Christian to not be able to navigate this life in a godly way reflecting who our Lord and Savior is. If you have ever said the words, this may lose me friends, and if it does, I don't care, but I have to speak the truth. I would submit if you've made that statement, you've read this wrong. Because speaking the truth should not lose your friends. Speaking the truth should not be hateful or hurtful or judgmental. The truth brings life. So I think we should examine what we say through that. Is it liberty to do anything we please or to do what we ought? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you left your word for us thousands of years ago, and those words are illuminated by the Holy Spirit. They literally jump off the page into our hearts to help us navigate this life that we have to go through. These trials and troubles and situations that we face today are nothing new lord you've foreseen them thousands of years ago and you gave us the roadmap so lord we just repent right now of not seeking your guidance on everything that comes our way anything that we have said or done that does not bring life and does not reflect the glory of who you are father we repent of missing the mark And we just pray now that you come and just show us how we are to take a teaching like this, how we are to take scripture like this and apply it to our lives. We want the responsibility that comes with the freedom that Jesus paid that price so dearly for us. Father, we accept who you are and we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, church, we have um, one thing real quick before we go. We're gonna go into communion right now. We have, we're kind of re-instituting our prayer ministry. It's always been there, but we have people again who are live here who are gonna be in the back of the sanctuary. If you need prayer, go find one of them and they'll pray with you. If it's too loud in here, we can step outside or move around. You can do that. If you're online, you can email prayer at discovercommunity.church. Leave that prayer request and we'll share that with our, pray te- our prayer team. Gabe and I will pray over them. Our prayer team will pray over them. We want to get back into that. Another thing we're doing is at the crosses. We have note cards and push pins. You can write on a note card a prayer request if you want to do it like that. Just pin it to the cross and leave it. And we'll collect those and we'll pray over those together as a team and as of pastors of this church. But let's do that. Take advantage of the community that God has placed around us to help strengthen and encourage one another. And if you're going to join us for communion, if you're at home or wherever you are, if you came in here and didn't grab one at the back table are these cups, let's take communion together and just celebrate. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, but I see it as more of a celebration. So whatever you have, whether it's toast from this morning or whatever you have, take the bread which represents the body of Christ broken on the cross for you. And by partaking in this bread, you are accepting the sacrifice and aligning yourself with his heart, which is reconciliation with the Father. Take the bread. the blood of Christ, Jesus describes it as the blood of the new covenant. That new covenant that he will be Not just our God, but He will be with us in our hearts, providing reconciliation, providing fellowship with the Father, all those things that go along with the new covenant, this beautiful promise that Christ made and paid such a price to fulfill that promise for us. If you agree with that, take the blood. Lord, we do this with thankful hearts and an acknowledgement of your grace and your mercy in our lives. Father, we thank you for who you are and we thank you for your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, guys.